0: We concluded last week our short little mini-series of how to study the Bible, and um, I know I've talked to a handful of you, at least a, a number of you have kind of approached me and kind of expressed your uh, your thoughts on that little series, and I was encouraged by what you um, told me because it sounded like it equipped you and it encouraged you, and again, the whole point of doing that little mini-series was kind of a twofold approach. It was to... By God's grace, um, whet your appetite to, uh, for kind of an increase uh, and a desire for learning and studying God's word, but also to equip you to have a greater confidence in studying God's word, because sometimes we don't do things because of lack of confidence. And so, yeah, to grow your appetite, but also to equip you as you more confidently study God's word. By the way, how's the, the reading plan going? Yeah. It's been going really well in our household, too. And again, the, the, the intent behind the church-wide reading plan was this. It was really to uh, allow us to, in a sense, be reading the same thing so that when we're in conversations with each other, when we're in conversations with our spouses or whoever, uh, it's not just a, hey, how's it going? But it's also like, what did you think about the reading this week or this one passage that you were exposed to this week? And so I want to keep encouraging you that and not that you have to change your current reading plan, but if you don't have one, uh, then this is a great opportunity for you. And by the way, in your bulletin, the next two-week reading plan is in there for you so we can continue on in our study of God's Word together. Before we jump into the text here this morning, I want to kind of ask a question. And this question is like the opposite of what my kids do. My kids like to, to think of all the powers they have, and so they're like, we have the power to walk on lava, and we have the power to fly, and we have the power to do this and that and the other thing. You know, that's, that's the games they play. But as you grow a little older, sometimes, or at least in college, it was kind of these questions in my psychology classes especially where they would kind of go, if you had to give up a sense, one of your five senses, which sense... Do you kind of, are you more attached to than others? For example, uh, would you be willing to give up the, the sense of sight? Now, I know most of us probably would say, well, I don't want to give up any of my senses. But if you had to give up a sense, which sense would you give up? Obviously, if you're a photographer or maybe a, an artist of some kind, maybe the, the, the sense of sight would be very difficult for you. Uh, if you're a musician, obviously the, the sense of hearing would be an unfortunate uh, sense to lose. If you are a chef, you probably don't want to give up your sense of taste or smell, um, or you don't have a whole lot of people eating at your table. Um, whatever it may be, what, what it would be for you, just kind of reflect on that just for a second, what, would, what is that sense that you're like, man, I, this is the one I would really hate to lose? I think you'll see how that relates in our text this morning in just a moment. But really what we're doing is we're picking up in the the Gospel of Matthew once again, and again, the theme is Jesus is the sovereign king. I love that last song we just sang. It's just all about the King Jesus. Jesus is sovereign king. He's initiated, he's he's, he's brought in the kingdom of heaven by his very presence, and we see that now we're picking up uh, where we left off a number of weeks ago, but just to kind of give you a little update as to where we're going. Jesus just completed the Sermon on the Mount. We spent a lot of time in the Sermon on the Mount, but he just concluded his longest recorded sermon in the Gospel of Matthew, and now he's coming down the hill, and we see another aspect of Jesus's ministry on display. So we see that Jesus, obviously he he taught a lot, and this wasn't the first time he taught, but part of his teaching, part of his ministry, part of why he was here on the earth was so that he might teach, so people would know the truth. In fact, to the Gospel of Matthew, we see that Matthew himself in verse 23 of chapter four kind of gives us kind of a summary statement of what Jesus' ministry looks like. Verse 23 of chapter 4, he says, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. That's like a summary statement of what Jesus was here to do, and we see that chapters 5 through 7 kind of fulfilled the first part of that, that he went around proclaiming the kingdom of heaven, teaching them to understand what is true, what is right, and now we get a glimpse starting in chapter 8 of kind of the second part of Jesus' ministry, and that is kind of in a sense that he's revealing his authority to heal and to cast out demons and to raise the dead. And so chapters 8 and 9 especially, we see that Jesus, that Matthew records uh, 10 miracles that Jesus kind of performs. And it's interesting when you look at these miracles, Jesus doesn't start out with the Jewish people. He starts out, well, he does start with the Jewish people, but he starts out with people that were considered outcasts. The first three miracles have to do with a leper, have to do with a Gentile, and they have to do with a woman. All miracles. certain social classes that were considered a little bit less than in this society, in this culture. And yet Jesus prioritizes them. So we read here in Matthew chapter eight, and I'm gonna read the text one more time for us since it's only a few verses. And, uh, and then we're gonna make some observations because remember, first we gotta make careful observation before we can make uh, accurate interpretation, Right? So let me just read the text here for one more time. You can read along with me or you can just listen. Verses 1 through 4 of Matthew chapter 8 and then we'll draw six points of observation. When he, that is Jesus, came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priests and offer the gift that Moses commanded for proof to them. So as any careful studier of God's word must do, we need to first just kind of before we start making sense of what Jesus is saying, what it means to our lives, first we need to say, what, what do we see in this text here? And so we have six, there's six points of observation that I'm going to uh, kind of identify here for us before we jump into kind of the interpretation application mode of this. The first point of application is very straightforward. We see that the man was a leper. Jesus is coming down from the mountains, great crowds are following him, and there's a certain man, he's just not one of the crowds, a certain man comes up to him and he is a leper. Now I know you and I probably right now are going, I know I have some knowledge of what leprosy is because maybe I've been in the word of God and I, you know, it talks about leprosy, but maybe I don't really know what leprosy actually is. So I don't really know much about this guy, he's a leper, but what does that really mean? Well, in my own study this past week, in my own desire to understand kind of just this idea or really just this, this disease called leprosy, let me just read something for you that I read. Um, I'm just going to probably kind of give you more of a synopsis of it. Uh, Dr. Paul Brand, he did a ton of research on leprosy, also called Hansen's disease. It's a skin disease, and he basically says Hansen's disease or leprosy is like an anesthetic to the body. So it's, kind of a, it's a different kind of disease in that most diseases cause us or inflict great pain in our bodies, but not leprosy. Leprosy doesn't cause pain at all. In fact, it's just the opposite. You lose all sensation. The pain receptors are gone. And now at first you might seem like, wait, that's not a bad thing, is it? You know, I don't feel any more pain anymore. That's got to be a good thing, right? Not actually. You know, there's a reason why God created us with pain receptors, Because pain receptors keep us alive. And when you don't have any pain receptors that are kind of being triggered necessarily, guess what happens? You destroy your body and you make it extremely vulnerable and susceptible to all kinds of other diseases and complications and accidents. So Dr. Brand, he, he, he's gone all over the world kind of studying this and making observations and he's realizing that it's not a matter of pain but it's a matter of not feeling anything that actually destroys people's bodies. For example, he's, he was in India and he says he was having trouble opening up this little storeroom and the, the, the padlock was all rusty and so he says, I couldn't get it and this little 10-year-old boy comes up to like, let me help you out and he just ranks on it, opens it up and he was shocked. He's like, how did this little kid open this lock that I, as an adult, could not open. And then he saw a drop of blood on the ground, and then he looked at the kid's finger, and the kid had ripped his finger to the bone. And he didn't even know it. You see, all throughout India and Africa, where sometimes this disease seems more prominent, we see that Dr. Brand discovered that many of these people would be putting their hands in fire, but they wouldn't feel any pain, so they wouldn't know that their hands were actually burning. One such man actually was in the habit of taking a a warm washcloth to his face, but he could not feel the warmth, and he did not know the water was actually scolding, and he went blind. It was burning his skin, and of course when your skin is burned and open, it's susceptible to all other kinds of diseases. And so when you have leprosy, you don't die of leprosy, you die of everything else because of it. You, don't, you, you can die from simple things because you're not aware. And so people with leprosy, they may pull a bustle, they may, may break a bone, and they don't even feel it, so they keep walking on what's broken or torn, and it just gets worse and worse, and their body is ravaged until they ultimately die. And a leper came to him and knelt before him. So the man is a leper. This man has a death sentence. In fact, not to get ahead of myself, but we realize that up to this date, there is is no known recorded indication that anybody was healed of leprosy apart from God's intervention. We see that God did through his prophets sometimes uh, allow people to be be healed of their leprosy or Moses intervening on behalf of his sister-in-law, Miriam or Elijah's servant when he was in rebellion but ultimately it was all only God's intervention and it was known that only God did that. This man is a leper. Second observation, however, if you look at Luke's gospel, this man, Luke says, is full of leprosy. So he's not someone who has been just recently diagnosed with a skin condition or a problem, but we see that this man was full of leprosy, meaning it was probably very obvious to him as well as obvious to everyone else that this man did not have long to live, that this man was, was, was looking pretty ravaged. His body was probably pretty broken and therefore, he did not have much to live. And, and so it's interesting, that kind of brings us to our third observation. This man was not brought to Jesus, but this man came to Jesus on his own initiative. He was not, he didn't, you you see, see, when you look at the Gospels here, you you see that many people, they they were oftentimes brought to Jesus. People that loved a sibling or a relative or a servant or whatever, they loved them and so they brought them to Jesus. Even demon-possessed people were brought to Jesus, but this man was never brought to Jesus. Why? Because he was a leper. Because no one could be around him. The very fact that you had leprosy or Hansen disease meant that you were considered unclean, and so therefore you were considered physically separated. You were physically ostracized. You were socially ostracized. You were spiritually or ceremonially ostracized. You could not be around anybody except for other people that were dying of leprosy. You were removed from the camp. I mean, just just put yourself in that situation if you can for a moment. Think, put yourself in the shoes or the sandals of this leper here for a moment. You have not been able to touch or to be touched for years. Probably just this morning when you walked in, someone gave you a handshake, maybe gave you a hug, gave you a pat on the shoulder. Just normal stuff, right? Other parts of the world are kissing each side either side of the face, you know. We're used to, you know, touch is a normal sense. This is something that we do. This is something very, uh, very familiar to what it means to be humans. Humans touch. There's something that's communicated in our touch. And yet this man is not touched at all. You know, it's interesting when you, uh, in Africa, many of the African orphanages, when, when babies die at a younger age, they don't die because of a lack of nutrition or shelter or anything like that. They die because of a lack of touch. You see, in these orphanages where there's tons and tons of kids and there's very few workers, there's not enough workers to go around and literally hold the baby. And guess what? The baby dies not from a lack of food, but from a lack of being held. It's almost like what it means to be human is stripped from them And then, therefore, there's no more hope. This man is not able to be touched. He's not been included with anything. He's not invited to any social gathering. He's not allowed to, 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 he's not even allowed, he has to go around and saying, unclean, unclean. In other words, he has to tell people, stay away from me, stay away from me, don't get close to me, because leprosy was very contagious. You could pass it on to other people very quickly. And so we had to avoid being around anybody. And we see that also in Leviticus chapter 13 and 14 that if you had a skin disease like leprosy or something similar, we see that you were considered unclean and therefore ceremonially you could not attend the tent of meeting, you could not attend the the synagogue, you could not do corporate worship with one another. In fact, we see in Scripture also that leprosy was in a sense kind of a, a physical condition that was parallel to a spiritual condition. Oftentimes, God used leprosy as a way of inflicting punishment or discipline on people for their rebellion. As I alluded to earlier, we see that Miriam, the the mother, or the, excuse me, the sister in law of Moses, she was inflicted with leprosy when he, when she and Aaron kind of uh, kind of went to cahoots with one another and they um, disagreed with Moses. They were in rebellion, and we see that God inflicted Miriam with leprosy, and on behalf of Moses' intercession. Seven days later, she was able to rejoin the family. We see that Elijah's servant, Gazi, he's, he, he basically kind of, he tried to abuse Elijah's, um, his ministry for self-serving gain and God inflicted him with leprosy. King Uzziah disobeyed God by making an offering in the temple, something that only the priest was supposed to do and therefore he was inflicted with leprosy. But the fact is, in spite of whatever reason, this man was inflicted with leprosy we see that no one was able to bring him and he had to come alone regardless of all the social taboos regardless of all the the shame and the rejection and the humiliation that is associated with this skin disease this man came to Jesus maybe no doubt in desperation no doubt his body is ravaged no doubt he's probably thinking I don't have long to live this is my only hope Another observation we can make in this four-verse text is that this, neper, this leper kneels before Jesus and calls him Lord. Now, we don't know what the, leper was, what the leper was thinking when he knelt and kneeled because these actions and these words can be associated with people when they worship deity or they can also just be associated with people that are just kind of giving some sort of proper social respect and so we don't know exactly what's going through the mind of this leper, but we know that, we know that he, when he approached Jesus, there was a reverence. He knelt before him. He recognized something different about Jesus, and he calls him Lord. Fifth observation. The question in the mind of the leper is not if Jesus is able to heal him. The question in the mind of the leper is, is Jesus willing to help him look at what he says here lord if you will you can make me clean you see in the mind of this leper he had no doubt in god's ability he had no doubt in jesus's power ability to heal him the question in his mind is will you jesus heal me will you intervene for me will you come to my aid in my greatest hour of need And, of course, as we see, Jesus says, I will, and he heals him. Sixth observation. Jesus healed the leper by touching him. He healed the leper by touching him. Now, think about the significance or the implications of that. This guy hadn't been touched, we can assume, because leprosy sometimes lasts 20 to 30 years before the person eventually dies, It can be a long, grueling, slow death, basically. And Jesus reaches out. Maybe he's had leprosy for 20 years. And he's touched for the very first time. Now, why in the world would Jesus touch him? Why would he do that? I mean, after all, he he could have spoken the words very easily, and the guy would have easily been healed. After all, that's what he's about ready to do in the next miracle. He speaks the words, not even in presence. He just speaks the words, and the centurion servant is healed. So why, why did Jesus touch this man? After all, if you touch someone who's unclean, you likewise become unclean. I appreciate what David Platt says He says, Jesus, in his touching of this man to heal him, identifies with the uncleanness of the leper in order to make the leper clean. It's interesting to note that when you touch, or if someone were to touch a a leper, they would in turn, in a sense, become unclean. But not so with Jesus. You see, when this leper was touched by Jesus, the opposite happened he actually became clean. As Platt would go on to say, he says, in fact, we get a foretaste of what Jesus will do ultimately at the cross with the uncleanness and the lies of every one of us. So we make six observations, right? He's a leper. No doubt this leprosy has been ravaged for a very long time. The the, the question in the mind of this leper is, will God heal me? Not can he, but will he heal me? Jesus says he will. He has pity on him or he has compassion on him and he heals him. And he touches him in order to do that. What are we to make of this miracle account? How do we understand what's going on here? What are we to walk away with, so to speak, by kind of observing this, this narrative here? I think there's four points of application That I draw from this passage. The first point of application is this, and if you're following along in your notes in the bulletin, you can fill in the blanks there too. First point of application like leprosy, sin spreads, defiles, and isolates. Like leprosy, sin spreads, defiles, and isolates. I mean, without reiterating too much of what I just said earlier, we see that physically, the physical aspect of leprosy was often associated with spiritual rebellion before God. And we see that leprosy ultimately disassociated. It ostracized you from fellowship. It ostracized you from people. Also, people knew that because of leprosy, it was very contagious, and so you couldn't be around others in case you would infect them. In other words, it wasn't just to yourself. You were completely removed from the camp so that you would not infect everybody else. It's sort of what Paul says in Galatians 5.9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump, right? You don't necessarily make everything good by your presence. Everything that's bad makes, in a sense, draws you down. Bad company corrupts good morals. We see like leprosy, sin spreads and defiles and isolates. What we must understand about our sin is this, that our sin is not just unique to us. It doesn't just affect us. Your sin affects everyone around you. The deception or the subtle deception that we are convinced and thinking sometimes is that, well, I can have my private sin and it doesn't necessarily affect anybody and that's exactly, that's definitely not true. That's not what scripture teaches. In fact, we see that even in the private sin of your own heart ultimately has a negative consequence. It has a negative effect in the lives of those around you, much like leprosy. And as much as you are convinced and thinking that you can kind of keep this private or keep it to yourself or that it's just not, it's not going to be associated with anybody else, we see that that's just not true. And that's why even as Christian, as Christians, sin ultimately blinds us to the love of God. Even as Christians who are bought by the blood of Jesus, who have been saved to eternity, who have had the the promise that their sins are forgiven, ultimately, we still sin, obviously, in this life, even though our sins are forgiven. And in our sin, we see that it blinds us to the love of God, not because God stops loving you, but because you cannot, in your sin, be aware of God's love for you. You see, sin blinds you. It negatively affects you. And so God can then sense, if we were to kind of envision what this might look like, God can be right in front of you and you can't see him. Because in your sin, it distorts, it blinds, it disturbs. And that's why Jesus says, confess your sins. For he is faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness, 1 John one nine. The reason why we have this, this powerful and, and really an, an invitation to come confess our sins is because God wants you to realize what he offers you freely but also knows that in your sin you, can't, you are radically unaware. You are blind. So like leprosy, sin spreads and defiles and ultimately isolates you. Second application Let me actually. I'm just going to pause here. This is kind of off the notes here. I've been processing this late last night and this morning, so this is unfiltered. Un, this is maybe not going to come out as clearly. But as I was thinking about just leprosy and how that kind of related to sin, just the fact that leprosy is like it get it gets rid of all your pain sensors. I was just thinking about this. I was like, man, it's it's much like when we ignore our conscience. You think that the pain receptors that God has given us, though we don't like to experience pain, actually enable you to survive. And in a very parallel fashion, we have a conscience that God has given us so that we might know right from wrong, so that we know what is dangerous and what is good. But unfortunately, sometimes we can be so much in the habit of ignoring our conscience, like not experiencing the pain that we do things that are extremely destructive to us and for us and around us because we don't recognize that this is actually doing more damage. We're unable to see that this is actually causing great havoc and harm in our life. So can I just exhort you in this way? If God, by his spirit, is telling you to stop then stop. Because that little radar that goes off, that little prick that says, hmm, that's perhaps the spirit of God saying, this isn't good for you. That's that pain receptor going off like, this is bad for you. You think it's no big deal, but it's actually detrimental to you and everyone around you. So I move on, application number two. Like the leper, we too must come to Jesus in times of need. Much like this leper did, we too must come to Jesus in our time of need. Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 30, Jesus says this, come to me all who are weary and carry heavy burdens and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, let me teach you because I am humble and I am gentle at heart and I will and I and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy to bear and my burden the burden that I give you is light. Hebrews 4:16 Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may find re, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. You see, much like the leper, you and I, sometimes, sometimes our default is to kind of run to Jesus as a last resort. But maybe we can switch that a little bit. Maybe like this leper, we need to run to Jesus as a first resort. Not trying everything on our own power and our own strength and our own ability, but running to Jesus going, Lord, I need your help. I need you to intervene. I need you to come. And much like we see in, the, in Luke chapter 18, the persistent widow, just because you ask God once to intervene doesn't mean you should stop asking. God loves a persistent asker. You and I, we get annoyed when people nag at us, right? You and I get annoyed when people ask us constantly for the same thing. Guess what? God doesn't. He loves your persistence. He loves you to keep on asking. In fact, we were were encouraged in verse 1 of Luke at chapter 18, Jesus is trying to teach his disciples to always pray and to never give up. So we know what that parable is about. It's all about persistently pursuing God, not stopping or asking. Well, I've been asking Aaron, and he hasn't said anything. He hasn't done anything. Nothing's changed in my life. Don't stop asking. That's the message of Scripture but I've already asked God, keep asking. But when is he gonna do it? I don't know, keep asking. That's what he tells you to do. Let God do what he's going to do. And even though it may seem that God is slow to act, even though it may seem that God is delayed in his response from our perspective, please understand, brothers and sisters, that God's delays, if they are in fact delays, are for our good. Because oftentimes they bring us to the end of ourselves and they grow us. In fact, they they help us learn what scripture throughout says that we grow in endurance, that we grow in perseverance, that we grow in steadfastness. In fact, if you turn over with me to James chapter five, just turn real quickly to James chapter five. James speaks to this necessary growth and endurance or steadfastness. James chapter five, verses seven through 11. He says this, be patient, therefore, brothers. There we go, be patient. Not, hey God, when are you gonna do this? Be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers and sisters, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. And you have heard of the steadfastness of Job, And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. The point we're getting at is this. Much like the leper, we must come to Jesus in our time of need. But at the same time, we need to understand that when we come to Jesus in our time of need, he may, like this leper, instantly heal us, or he may for reasons ultimately known to himself, choose to say not yet or not in this way. Kind of brings us to our, kind of our next point of application. Application number three, because God is good, we can trust that he will help us in our time of need. Let me say that again. Because God is good, We can trust that he will help us in our time of need. As I said before, the question in our minds probably has less to do with God's ability or his power. More more often than not, we in here might even acknowledge, I know God is able to do anything. Ephesians 3.20, he's able to do exceedingly, abundantly above all we can ask or think so the question in our minds isn't, is God able? The question in our mind isn't, does God have the power to do this? The question in our minds is, is God willing to do this? Will God intervene? Will God come to my aid? Will God help me in my time of need? And oftentimes our lack of faith or the, the weakness in our faith has nothing to do with God's ability. has everything to do with God's heart. We question, is God good? Does he care? Will he come when I need him most? There is a qualification to this, however. Because, and this, and this is the qualification that as Scripture interprets Scripture, because if we were to take this passage in and of itself in isolation, sometimes we can form unbiblical theologies And so we must understand Scripture through the lens of the entire counsel of God's Word. So the qualification is this God's willingness to act does not mean He is obligated to give you what you ask for. God's willingness to act, He will act. But his willingness to act does not mean he's obligated to give you what you ask for. Now, we must understand this is why understanding the goodness of God is foundational to our asking, it's foundational to how we relate to God. This is why we see in Matthew chapter 7, for example, that he doesn't give us a rock when we ask for bread, or he doesn't give us a snake when we ask for fish, or whatever it is. He doesn't give us things that are not good for us, he doesn't give us things that are not useful. Of course, he does. God gives us everything we need for life and for godliness. But he gives us exactly what we need according to his divine will. As John would say in 1 John 5, 14, he says, and we are confident that he hears us whenever we ask anything that pleases him. Verse 15, and since we know that he hears us when we make our requests, we also know that he will give us What we ask for. But you understand that he will give us what we ask for is contingent on the fact that we ask for the things that please him. And we only, when we ask the things that are pleasing to him, we know that they're pleasing to him because they're consistent with his will. They're consistent with his purposes. So if we were to kind of make the careful contrast here, On one hand, we see that in this leper account, we see that this leper really identifies God's ability and power to intervene. He comes to Jesus because he knows he could be healed. He comes to Jesus because he knows that Jesus is able to do anything. He knows that he can be made clean, he can be made right, he can be reconciled and reunited with his family and his friends. But at the same time, he entrusts himself to the will of the Father, He's not wondering, God, I know you can, but you probably won't. I don't think that's what this text is indicating. He's wondering, I know you can, but is it in accordance to your will? So he's entrusting himself to the sovereign will of God. And we'd see that Jesus was in fact willing, and he was healed instantaneously. On the other hand, we must also understand through, you know, when, when God is willing because he, we know that he's willing because he is good. We also see that sometimes what he's willing to do isn't necessarily what we ask for. And I think Paul's thorn in the flesh gives us a prime example to that. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we see that Paul says, I was given this thorn in the flesh to kind of keep me becoming too prideful. And he asked three times, God, please take this away. And I don't think Paul doubted in faith. I don't think he lacked in faith. But we see that ultimately in his asking, God says, no. My power is made perfect in your weakness. And so Paul says, therefore I boast of my weaknesses. I take pleasure in my weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong." I believe the question that you and I have to grapple with in our lives this morning but pretty much every single day is this is God still good even if he doesn't answer your prayer the way you want him to is God still good even if he doesn't if even if your desires and your will do not align with his purposes Because brothers and sisters, you won't run to the throne of grace as Pastor Tom read about. You won't run to the author and perfecter of your faith if you don't believe he's good. You won't ask him at all or you won't keep asking him if you don't believe that he's good, that he desires to give you good things. So the goodness of God is foundational in how we relate to God. God. The goodness of God is reflected in how we run to God in our time of need. But resting in the fact that I don't exactly know what I need at all times. I know what I want, but only God ultimately knows what I need. David Platt says it this way, the one who is able to heal also knows when to heal. The Lord knows what will bring him the most glory and what will bring us the most good. Fourth application and final application. By the way, men, you can get ready to come forward here. The primary purpose in Jesus' life and ministry is to save sinners. The main reason, the primary reason why Jesus came to earth in the first place is to save sinners. Have have you ever wondered for a moment, um, this almost seems offhanded here, but why in the world did Jesus tell this man not to tell anybody? I mean, do you you see that? He's like, this, this, this miraculous thing happens. This guy is ecstatic. I mean, who knows what's going through his mind? He's probably flooded with all kinds of thoughts and emotions and just gratitude. Maybe he's crying with joy. And, God's, and Jesus says, uh, don't tell anybody. Isn't that kind of weird? That's the last thing on your agenda. You're like, I'm telling everybody. What are you talking about? And he actually does. So he doesn't really listen to what Jesus tells. He's like, don't tell anybody. And he goes and tells everybody. And in some ways, I don't really blame him, you know? I mean, why wouldn't you want to tell anybody? How could you even keep something like that in? There's a lot of reasons suggested as to why Jesus might say that. I mean, some people say that Jesus doesn't want you know, everyone to disregard him as a miracle worker, but on the other hand, you see that he's got crowds of people following him because he's performing lots of miracles. We see that some people say they, they, don't, want him to, they don't want to think of Jesus as, or Jesus doesn't want others to think of him as like a political or social deliverer from their oppressors, and that could be partly true. Some people say there's really nothing to read into this. In fact, Jesus may just be saying, hey, don't get distracted. Go straight to the priest because you're not officially or formally declared clean until you are declared clean by the priest. That's the law of Moses, Leviticus 13 and 14. So he's like, just don't get distracted. Go to the temple. Get, d- get declared clean and you're good. Maybe that's what Jesus had in his mind. And all those could be partially true perhaps. I don't know. But I believe a prominent reason that I think that is that is convincing is that why for the reason as to why Jesus told this man not to tell everyone was that Jesus' primary mission was at stake. And what I mean by that is this Jesus didn't want his ministry or his mission to be hindered. Jesus didn't come into the world merely to physically heal, although he did and can do that, but he came primarily to heal us spiritually. Let me put it this way. Jesus did not merely come in to save us from the symptoms of sin. He came came to save us from sin itself. That's why he came. Luke 19.10, the Son of Man came to seek and to save those who are lost. First Timothy 1 Timothy 1.15, Christ Jesus came into the world, why? To save sinners. Jesus relates in John 12, my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Therefore, Father, glorify your name. We see that sin is, the, the, is what eternally condemns us and separates us from God, much like leprosy, Right? Sin is what separates us from God. We are ostracized from his fellowship. We cannot be in his presence. We can't be in the presence of a holy God and yet Jesus comes and he touches us and he makes us clean so that we might be reconciled to God. That's what Jesus does. That's why he came. He says, you are unclean, you are enslaved, you are dead, you are blind and I'm gonna erase all of that. Ultimately, holistically, holistically, But especially right now, it starts with the core, not just the symptoms, but the issue, the source of the problem, and that is our sin. And so Jesus came in the world to eradicate sin and the works of the devil. Since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he, that is Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who, Who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. That's why Jesus came. The ultimate purpose, the ultimate mission of Christ was to come and save that which was lost to eradicate the, the negative consequences, the destructive nature of sin so that we might live, so that our, our lives might be guaranteed with eternal life, so that even though in this life we may experience struggle and hardship because we're promised that we will in various forms, but we know that, we, and our hope is not that this will be our permanent status, but our hope is that one day all will be made right, all will be eradicated, all will be made good. Sin will be once and for all done away with and that all culminates at the cross of Jesus. We have every reason to celebrate what Jesus has come. Yes, he came, he healed. Yes, he came, he loved. Yes, he came, he uh, comforted. Yes, he came, he gave attention to those who didn't experience much attention from people but ultimately he came to die so that we might live forever forever.